Esther chapter 7 and verses 1 through 10 tonight, Esther's plea, Haman's fate is what I've titled the message. And uh, you will note here the, uh, the theme is God's providential care for his people. And then as we're working through the outline there, we're down to chapters 4 through 7. Esther's courage, Haman's plot backfires. Boy, it really backfires in a big way as we will see tonight. And I know it's not, a, it's not a good day when one day you build the gallows for somebody and the next day you are hanged on it, right? I mean, that's, that's, this is really not working the way you had hoped. But uh, providence is a wonderful doctrine, and it has a lot to do with timing. And, and God is behind the timing. He's behind the details. And He causes things to happen at just the right time to bring about a certain outcome. And he does it without, um, without violating the normal laws of nature, uh, by surpassing the normal laws of nature, as uh, in contradistinction to a miracle where the normal laws of nature are bypassed. And so uh, providence happens in the normal course of nature. And yet clearly there is a sovereign hand guiding the events to just the right outcome in just the right way at just the right time. And that's really what the book of Esther is all about with the centerpiece being the people of God. Uh, God does this in conjunction with His people and in particular with His people Israel as we are studying here. Well, in the Persian Empire, a wicked man by the name of Haman had become second in command, really, in the kingdom. It's a vast kingdom, 127 provinces in this, in this vast kingdom of Persia. And Haman, being in his position, really had some sway with the king, and, and he kind of used that sway. He manipulated a plot by which all the Jews were to be killed on a certain day, and he managed to get the king to sign it into law without the king really even looking at it very closely. And the king kind of tended to be that kind of a guy, like, okay, yeah, I'll go with that, I'll go with that. I don't know that he was a real deep thinker or not much of an original thinker, seems to me. Well, that was a big deal, to have this law signed where we're, on a particular day we're going to call for the killing of all the Jews. And it was a big deal because the law of the, the Persians and the Medes could not be changed. And so that's going to become an issue. Mordecai the Jew also had a high position serving in the king's gate, but he was hated by Haman because Mordecai the Jew refused to bow down before Haman, even though the king had commanded everyone to do so, which I don't know if it was Jewish pride or what it was, but there, there, was, some, there was some boldness there, so to speak, to where he was not willing to bow. Well, Mordecai's cousin, beautiful Esther, in the providence of God, ended up becoming the queen. And in her position, Mordecai now strongly exhorted her to go into the king and plead for the life of her people. Well, after asking her people to fast for her, she then went in to see the king, which in itself was a very risky proposition because no one was allowed to go in to see the king uninvited because if the king did not extend his golden scepter, you would die if he didn't grant you favor by saying, okay, you can come in. So uh, that was kind of a risky, uh, a risky thing to do. Well, as she went in to see the king, he did hold out the golden scepter, and he asked her what her petition was, as we say in chapter 5, verse 3. Well, she put him off. She deferred, 
and invited the king and his right-hand man, which would be Haman, to a banquet that she had prepared for that later that day. Well, at the banquet, the king once again asked her what her petition was, and she again deferred, inviting the king and Haman to yet another banquet on the next day. I'm kind of wondering how long she could have done this. <laughs> hey, how about tomorrow? How about another party tomorrow? Uh, let's just keep this going. I mean, this is getting kind of interesting. Well, very interestingly, uh, between that first banquet and the second banquet, the king could not sleep that night. And so he asked for the, shall we call them the minutes? The minutes of the court uh, that they might be read. And as they read to him, they read about how Mordecai some years earlier had saved the life of the king by exposing two eunuchs who were looking to assassinate the king. And so the king says, well, what has been done for Mordecai? I mean, this guy saved my life. Something should be done for him. And they said, nothing. Nothing's been done. Nothing in the record. We haven't done anything for him. So the king is musing about what he can do for Mordecai because he's just read about in the night and his sleepless night about what Mordecai has done for him. <clears throat> well, here, early that next morning, as he's, the king is thinking about how to honor Mordecai, uh, here comes Haman prancing into the court. He's coming to see the king, and he's going to ask that, he be, uh, um, that Mordecai be strung up on the gallows that he has put up for him. That's, what, that's why he's there. Well, I'm going to go in, man. I've got the sway with the king. I'm sure the king will sign off on this just like he has everything else in recent days. Well, as he arrived at the court to ask the king for permission to be hanged, uh, and and talk about timing, uh, I mean, it's almost humorous, Uh, the king asked Haman what should be done for the man whom the king wants to honor. And, of course, Haman, full of himself, thought, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? So let's really make this juicy. Uh, Let's really uh, talk about uh, what would be the most honorable thing you could do for somebody like me. And so he said, in effect, that this one that the king wants to honor should be paraded in a kingly fashion, you know, on the king's horse, in the king's wardrobe, and, and he should be paraded through the, the capital city with a loud announcement, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And he's expecting the king to say, well, hey, I want to honor you in this way, Mr. Haman. But then the king promptly commanded that Haman do this for Mordecai, the Jew. <laughs> I like to see in his face. Talk about humorous irony. This is it. Well, Haman did as the king commanded. Then he rushed home mourning all the way with his head covered. And there at home, his wife and his friends told him, quote, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent. Interesting their reasoning here. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. It's it's like they even seem to realize you can't mess with the Jews like you're doing. And if Mordecai is of Jewish descent, they're saying, you're going to fall. If this has started happening, you're going to fall before him. Boy, if that proved to be true. And by the way, it really wasn't a strong vote of confidence. If he was looking for a little bit of vote of confidence from his family and his friends there, he didn't get it. And just that quick, here come the couriers to escort Haman off to the next banquet. And that brings us to chapter 7. Now, it is often said that the devil is in the details. Well, 
Often the devil is in the details, but I want you to know that God is sovereign over all the details. And that is what we find in the story of Esther. Ultimately, God's plan cannot be thwarted. And no matter how favorable things seem to initially be going for the enemies of God and for their plans, which are at cross purposes with God's plan, God is large and in charge. And He controls everything, and we see this in the details of chapter 7. Let's pick it up, chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. Now there's a lot of whining and dining in this story. And this is really now the fifth, uh, the fifth banquet that is named in the, in the story. Verse 2. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther. Again he says to her, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. By the way, this is now the third time the king has asked Esther what her petition is. And this is the third time he has said to her, up to half the kingdom, it will be granted to you. Uh, you, You know, if somebody's making that kind of grandiose promise time and time again, pretty soon he's painting himself into a corner, isn't he? God has to do it. God has to do it when you're saying something that strong. Pretty hard to deny her. After promising her time and time and time again, I'm going to give you whatever you want up to half the kingdom. Well, verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. She's not asking for much. Just her life in the life of her people, this had to be staggering for the king to hear. I don't think he, in his wildest dreams, envisioned her asking for her life. He didn't see this coming. And I'm sure he was shocked beyond measure. What could this be about, for crying out loud? He had no idea. Verse 4, she continues and explains, for we have been sold... My people and I to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. Well, Esther at this point lays it all out. She and her people have been sold, been sold out. And she's talking about the price that Haman has offered to the king in exchange for the right to destroy these people and incorporated into law. Remember uh, what happened there earlier in Esther 3.9. Haman is suggesting this and driving this whole conversation. And he says, If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And just to kind of, you know, ensure it, And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse 7. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. So there was definitely a, a money motivation here in the mix. And it seems to me, as you study the record here, that the king initially cared very little about the loss of life involved here. 
Not so much as to even really check it out. Uh, All he heard was this great sum of money that Haman would put into the king's treasuries. And I think uh, he was very, very happy with that. And, and so was Haman. Notice the end of chapter 3. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command. And the decree was proclaimed in Shushan. That's the capital city. The citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. Well, let, let's, let's kind of celebrate what's been accomplished today. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. There was a lot of Jews in, this, in the capital city. And they were perplexed. What? How did this happen? It's like when legislation goes through and everybody kind of sees, this is going to be painful. This is not going to be good for us as a people, as a nation, as a country. How did this happen? Well, when the devil's man kind of gets his sway with the king, this is how it happens. The language that Esther used, namely destroyed, killed, and annihilated, was the exact language of the decree, which was encapsulated into law and sent into all the king's provinces. We see this in chapter 3, verse 13. And the letters were sent by the couriers into all the king's provinces. What? To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children, women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. So it's no question about what she's referring to. She's using the very language of this decree that had been sent out a couple of months ago. But note how carefully Esther stated the matter. Esther is very shrewd. Remember that her husband, the king, is also implicated here, right? I mean, uh, yeah, he signed off on this matter. He approved it. So she is carefully threading a needle here. I mean, she hardly, hardly wanted to implicate him as the one who has sold her out and her people, even to death. And yet, in reality, he was implicated, albeit ignorantly. But Esther certainly, I don't think, wanted to say that too directly, and so she doesn't. Uh, she says it kind of in a, a way that's kind of second-hand here a little bit. The real culprit was Haman, who manipulated the king to this end. And so certainly, Esther is choosing her words wisely, stating it in an indefinite manner that says simply, they've been sold out, without initially saying who has done it. And Esther here now directly identifies herself really as one of the Jews. Indirectly, she does. Well, Esther explains that had they merely been sold into slavery, she would have held her tongue. The last part of verse 4, translated in the New King James as, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss, is somewhat unclear. Uh, Some think that she is saying, in that case, it would not be worthy of bothering the king, which is a flattering way of saying how important he really is. (laughs) It's just not real clear what that last, the, the nuance of that last phrase is, but... Whatever the case, she was clearly saying that only because her lives were on the line was she willing to take this drastic action of appealing to the king in this way. So, verse 5, So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Who is it that has sold you out? And where is he? (laughs) He's close at hand. Where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? 
Well, because Esther spoke in kind of an ambiguous manner, the king is still not clear on the details. And so he asks, who is he and and where is he who would dare to presume in his heart to do such a thing? He still seems pretty oblivious to what specifically she's talking about. And this is perhaps because he paid so little attention to what Haman had manipulated him to do just two months earlier. Recall, according to what is recorded, that he didn't even ask what people it was that Haman wanted annihilated. All he heard, I think, was dollars are coming into his coffers, lots of dollars, and that was good enough. He sold them out all right, albeit ignorantly, ignorant of the uh, specifics. But note, uh, note old Haman. Old Haman, when he was bringing this to the king, as far as what's recorded here, uh, note Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people. I wonder who that people might be. Just a certain people out here. Scattered, dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them, who are they? Let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they, who are they? Be destroyed. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Okay, sounds good. Haman, if you're good with this, uh, fine. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as it seems good to you. Again, who's the them? Not ever clearly spelled out. Well, when you are the king, uh, you maybe should really vet things a little better. You might even want to vet the, uh, the heritage of your wife, right? <laughs> you, you might want to ask, what, what's your background? I know you're pretty, but where you come from, huh? Uh, when you're the king, you really should pay some attention to detail, especially when you're looking at wiping a whole segment of people off the face of the earth. You might want to look at that little detail, But apparently the details were not really covered. I mean, the king's got a lot going, 127 provinces, all kinds of people groups in his kingdom. And apparently the king thought this is a really pretty small matter to him. Uh, And he apparently thought this is a relatively small and insignificant people group that really didn't matter. Matter to Haman for some reason, but it didn't really matter to the king. Remember, he has a vast empire with many different people groups. So what was this one little... One little people group. Okay, they've got some issues. Let's wipe them out. No big deal. And again, I think all he heard was about all the money that Haman was promising to put into his treasury. That's really all he cared about. But guess who was there listening to all this? Well, Haman. He hadn't forgotten. He knew exactly whose plot it was to destroy Esther's people. And he knew it was the Jews. He knew full well they'd been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated because he, in fact, was the instigator of the plot. And he was the one who had put forth the money to sell them out. And at this moment, there had to be the highest of drama in the room. Well, suddenly he went from thinking just the day before that he was the most favored man in the kingdom. And the king just couldn't get enough of Haman. And the queen, too. I mean, of all people, he's invited to the banquet. He went from thinking, I'm the most favored guy, by both the king and the queen, to realizing his life is in jeopardy. Just that quick. Verse 6. 
And Esther said, the adversary, the enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And then I think uh, she did this with great boldness and conviction. I mean, I think at this point it came forth in a powerful, powerful way. Uh, the adversary is this, the, the enemy is this wicked Haman. Wow, that was a, a, a jaw dropper, had to be. Uh, the king's prime minister has just been indicted by the queen. High drama, high drama in the palace. Well, Haman was in instant terror as he was implicated by the most powerful man in the world as trying to kill the queen and her people. You really don't want to be indicted on those charges. Not by the queen. And he rightfully so was terrified. The word terrified is an interesting word. It's it's the same word used when David saw the angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand at Arana's threshing floor in 1 Chronicles 21.30, and he was paralyzed from action because of it. It's the same word used of Daniel's intense fear when he saw the angel Gabriel in Daniel 8.17, and at that time Daniel fell on his face because he was so afraid. We're talking fear and trepidation here. The idea here is uh, being uh, terrified stiff, if you will. It's to be in horror, totally overcome with fear. Well, Haman went from being arrogantly cocky the day before. Remember, I was bragging to his family about, oh, what a great guy he was and how much he had and how how much favor he had with the king and all of this stuff. He went from that cocky position to now quaking in terror on the next day. Reminds me of the lot of the wicked. Uh, When all is going well, they are so cocky, they have no fear of God, but suddenly all can change in a moment. And I think about Psalm 73 in this regard often. Uh, Of course, uh, you've got uh, concern, you know, why do the wicked prosper here is the theme of Psalm 73. And uh, the writer's talking about this, and he says in verse 6, Therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment, their eyes bulge with abundance, they have more than heart could wish, they scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression, they speak loftily, they set their mouth against the heavens, and, and their tongue walks through the earth. <clears throat> but as you work your way down, as he came into the sanctuary, he saw things a little differently. And he saw that, verse 19 says, Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with tears. I mean, when the judgment of God falls and these people pass from this life to the next life, this is their experience. Suddenly. Uh, They are consumed with tears, as in a moment. Well, verse 7, Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of the wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. King's not happy. Notice, did you get that? The king arose in his wrath. Now, why do you think the king was so angry? Why is he so angry, do you suppose? Well, I think there's a combination of things perhaps here. I I, I don't want to speak with dogmatism here, but I think he's kind of putting it all together at this point. You know, Haman had in essence deceived him as he manipulated this through without even discussing who the people were that he was buying to have killed, including the loyal Mordecai, 
who sat in the king's gate. And I think at this moment, the king knew to some degree that he'd been played, and he was very angry about it. It even involved the queen herself. There was a lot to think about. And I think the king uh, himself was implicated, and he kind of realized that at this point, certainly should have. He himself had given permission, after all, uh, to Haman to do as he, he pleased. So I think he was really angry about the whole situation. And he certainly was very upset with Haman. But he needed to get his head around it, and so he got up from the banquet, and he went out to the palace garden. I think I would probably to think about this and clear my head for just a moment. What in the world? This is, this is the craziest thing he's ever seen. Well, in the meantime, Haman, terrified out of his wits, is pleading for his life before Queen Esther because he saw the king was angry and he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. The king has got his number and something bad's going to happen. So Haman started out the day thinking this was to be the best day of his life. There was one, one problem. He had everything going for him, remember? He said, there's just one little cloud over my life, and that's this Mordecai the Jew. Well, build the gallows and hang him, and then go to the banquet and celebrate, is what the council was. He thought, well, I'm just going to take care of this one little problem in my life. All will be well. He started the day out thinking that. But just that quick, the tables turned. And suddenly he realized his very life was in jeopardy. Verse 8, when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Where Esther was. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? Well, as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. What timing? What timing? <laughs> the timing is really bad for Haman all the way through here. Just as the king was returning from the garden, here was Haman desperately pleading for his life with Queen Esther. And in his hysteria, he had fallen across the couch where Esther was lying. Bible knowledge commentary says, Persians, later Greeks, Romans, and Jews reclined on couches when they ate. So probably what they were doing is some kind of a, a reclining couch uh, that they were on. Uh, Holman Christian Study Bible says, Court documents from the Assyrian period state that a man must not come closer than seven steps... Uh, to one of the women in the palace. You don't, you don't get too close to, to the king's, you know, harem. You just, seven steps away. <laughs> he's, he's on the couch. I mean, he's falling over the couch. Uh, across the couch where Esther was. Not a good move. Way too close. And in the moment, it looked to the king like he was trying to assault her. That mistake proved to be fatal. Nelson's study Bible says Haman is draped over the queen's couch in a compromising position. Presumably, he was grasping at her with a desire to implore her favor. And she's not having anything of it, I'm sure, and he's kind of forcing the issue. He's desperate. Well, immediately when the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house, the palace personnel covered Haman's face throughout history. This has often been customary uh, to cover the head of a condemned prisoner. Verse 9, Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look! The gallows! Must have been able to see it. Fifty cubits high, seventy-five feet high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. 
Then the king said, hang him, hang him on it. Now, we first read about this eunuch, uh, Harbona, in chapter 1, where we find he was one of the eunuchs dispatched to bring Queen Vashti before the king and his drunken friends in in chapter 1. Well, true to form, the king doesn't seem to make a, a lot of original decisions, as I say, but seems to kind of follow the lead of those around him in their suggestions, and we have that again here. Harbona uh, suggest that Haman be hung on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king went with it. Well, at this point, Haman had three strikes against him. Number one, he had manipulated the king into signing into law the killing of the queen and her people. Uh, not a good idea. Number two, the king then perceived Haman to be attacking the queen right in his very presence. And number three, Haman is exposed to have been planning to kill Mordecai specifically, the man whom the king had just honored for his great loyalty earlier in the day. You know what that, that's, that's called? That's called strike three, you're out. He's done. The king then gave the order that Haman be hung as suggested. Verse 10, so they hanged Haman. They did it. Yep, that's it. The king's word went. It was over. They hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Now, there's some debate as to whether Haman was hung or impaled, but the result's the same either way. Uh, Gallows more literally means stake. Uh, Let's make some uh, application. Haman is an example that uh, you do ultimately uh, reap what you sow. Sooner or later, this always proves true. Uh, It's a principle throughout Scripture that cannot be avoided. Just a couple of references here. Psalm 26, 27, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. In other words, you reap what you sow. And we have that stated in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. When I think about Haman and the principle that we're looking at here in the book of Esther... I think about what is known as the third rail. Have you heard about the third rail? A third rail, also known as a live rail or an electric rail, is a means of providing electric power to a railway locomotive or train. Third rail systems are often supplied from direct current electricity. And to touch the third rail is deadly. Okay? In politics, they talk about the third rail as a metaphor for any issue so dangerously controversial that it is charged and untouchable to the extent that any politician who would dare to try and do so would suffer irreparable consequences. Well, I want to suggest to you tonight, as seen in the book of Esther, consistent with the whole counsel of God, that in the Bible, the Jews are the third rail. Uh, God said this way back early in Genesis. In the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 3, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. You can't outrun this. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Warren Wearsby says, every enemy that has ever tried to destroy Israel has been destroyed. Just one day earlier, Haman thinking that he was in such high favor with the king... The next day, he, he led Mordecai the Jew in a triumphal procession fit for a king throughout the capital city. One day earlier, Haman was plotting the death of the Jew Mordecai. The next day, he was pleading for his life from a Jewish queen. 
One day earlier, Haman was assured that he could have Mordecai killed and arranged for that to happen. The next day, he was hung on those very gallows. Well, Haman is an extreme example that one cannot touch the third rail of the Bible, which is the Jews, and not suffer tremendous damage in the process. The curse of God is upon such. And the world has yet to learn this lesson, but it will. It will come down hard on them in the tribulation period. The world is ever moving towards the final finale here, when the whole world will, in the end, be rallied against Israel. We know this. The prophets are very clear about this. For example, Zechariah chapter 14, and so forth. Well, when that happens, Israel will finally come to repentance, call on their Messiah, and Jesus will then come to their rescue. They will be saved out of the time of Jacob's trouble. Then will come the greatest reversal ever. The times of the Gentiles will be over. Israel will then be the head and not the tail. We have prophecies such as this in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 23. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you, it's talking about the Jews, with faces to the earth, and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That's Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. For they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. For those who wait for the Lord, there is coming a great re- reversal. And that's certainly true for repentant Israel, but it's also true for those of us who live in the church age as well. Uh, in the kingdom, things are going to be turned around. In this world, we're kind of downtrodden. You know, the people of God are persecuted and they're slandered and, and all that. But in the kingdom, there's going to be a great reversal. Will God help us to be among those who wait upon the Lord? The great reversal is about to take place. The kingdom is coming. God is going to work in the lives of the Jewish nation. It's interesting you think about the Jews. In Zechariah chapter 13, it says, it says that two-thirds of them are going to be purged out. So even though uh, the nation of Israel is going to be saved, most of the Jews are not going to make it through. Uh, There's a lot of hardness in Israel, but they're going to be purged out. But there's going to be one-third that does come to put their their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ during the time of the tribulation. And that group of Jews will experience the great reversal in the kingdom. Well, the Jews are still celebrating what happened back here with Haman. And we're going to be taking a look at that as we get into chapter 9 and chapter 10 to to finish out the study. Uh, Chapter 8, 9, and 10. All right, let's have our closing song, and then I'll close this in prayer.